Welcome to the Behind the Bits podcast. Your host, Scott Curtis, wants to learn everything he can about stand-up comedy and take you along for the ride. Scott and his guests talk serious about comedy in every episode. Behind the Bits will uncover knowledge from different perspectives on subjects such as writing and performing stand-up comedy, as well as booking shows and the comedy life. If you're thinking about becoming a stand-up comic, already in the comic game, or a comedy nerd, Behind the Bits is the show for you. Now, let's get Behind the Bits. Hey, BTB buddies, I wanted to let you know that I have a Patreon page now so that you can support the show. Check out patreon.com forward slash BTBPC and check out the cool stuff you can get for as little as two bucks per month. You can also find the link in the show notes. Thanks, as always, for listening. Hi there, BTB buddies. It's Scott, your host. I hope you're enjoying the Behind the Bits podcast because I sure enjoy putting it out there. As a podcast addict, I'm always looking for new podcasts to listen to different perspectives on comedy. I always like to find those independent podcasts that aren't hosted by the big name celebrities. You know, the ones where the host is actually doing it for the passion of their subject. I found a good one in Stand Up Reviews. That's the name of the podcast, Stand Up Reviews. Ben Guest is the host, and the podcast consists of him reviewing stand-up comedy specials. He's reviewed specials by Kevin Hart. Ricky Gervais and Dave Chappelle, just to name a few. I really like to hear Ben's point of view on stand-up reviews. I don't necessarily love all the specials that he reviews, but it's great to hear another opinion. Another great plus for this podcast is that it's not very long. You can listen to it on a quick car ride. All the episodes are about 15 minutes long, and they get right to the subject at hand. I listen to stand-up reviews on Spotify, but it's available on all the apps. Give it a listen and tell me what you think. Robert, thank you for being on the show. Thanks for having me, man. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Yeah. I've always been interested in you because you're an attorney and a comic. Mm -hmm. And the first question I wanted to ask you is which came first? Oh, uh, I was an attorney first. Okay. uh, I got my law license in 2007. Yeah. November, 2007. Uh uh, I started comedy on July 5th, 2012. So, okay. Yep. So what, gave you the impetus to become an attorney first? Well, I think I kind of always, when I was younger, I wanted to be an attorney and then I kind of got sidetracked and tried some other things. I went to, I was an engineering school. I was an engineering major for a year and a half. Mm -hmm. And then I got like my, I got my third report card. So then that was the end of that. And that I was like, what should I do? You know, and I always been interested in politics. So I got a political science degree and right in the middle of that, I decided I wanted to go to law school, go back to the first thing I kind of wanted to do, you know? So mm-hmm. that's, that's kind of where that came from. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And what type of law do you practice? Now I practice admi- basically administrative law. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I don't litigate. I used to litigate. I mm-hmm. used to do litigation, but yeah, now I just, just administrative stuff. Mm-hmm. I don't have to go to court anymore. So yeah, <laughs> yeah. that's not yeah. a bad thing. No, that's it. I, I appreciate that. <laughs> That takes a certain type of person. <laughs> yeah, it does. Yeah. Not a good one either. Yeah. <laughs> so if you became an attorney in 2007 and mm-hmm. then you started doing the uh, comedy in 2012, what happened between 2007 and 2012 that got you to the point where you wanted to start doing some stand up? 
do you want the answer that you give to people? Do you want the fake answer? Or do you want the real answer? Uh, this is a real podcast. Okay, so. good. So I'll be, all right. I just <laughs> had to make sure because, you know, some people don't want the real shit. You got to be, yeah, I, give people, yeah, I'm, you, know, uh, you know, I had wanted to be an attorney and I was, uh, I got my law license. I got the job, you know, and in 2008, I started working full time. Everything was going all right. And, you know, was making money and things were cool, but I di- I wasn't fulfilled. But you know how have you ever wanted something for so long and then when you get it, you realize it's not everything that that is cracked up to be? Yeah, several times in my life. Yeah. Right, right. Some people would call that a relationship. <laughs> I got in this thing and it wasn't what I thought it was gonna be. It didn't give me what I thought I should get from it. Mm-hmm. And I got really depressed. You mm-hmm. know. Like I depression is something I struggled with kind of like my whole life. Okay. You know? So it came back really bad, like twenty ten. And, you know, I just wasn't in a really good place. So I started going to therapy and uh, my therapist was talking to me and, you know, he, he sized me up pretty quick. He says, you know, you don't really have much by way of inspiration. Like you just kind of going through the motions of your day to day life, not really giving a fuck about a lot of stuff. Mm -hmm. And he told me, he said, think back to the last time that you did something and you lost track of time because you got so wrapped up in something that Mm -hmm. you just couldn't, you know, you didn't eat, you didn't do whatever. So when I was in law school, my first year, uh, there was this talent show that we put on and they asked me to host it. And so I had to write jokes mm-hmm. for that, you know, and it was a Saturday, like I, I blocked out cause you know, you studying, like I was studying nonstop, you know, my first year I was studying law school, but I blocked out a Saturday morning and I was like, okay, I'm gonna get up. I'm just working these jokes for a little bit. And then I'm get back to studying. Mm-hmm. And I sat down in in my little little dorm room and I started at like maybe 10 o'clock in the morning. And by the time I looked up, it was seven. Uh-huh. And I didn't realize that t- obviously I didn't realize time had gone that far, you know, and I had this long these pages. Most of the shit was garbage. It wasn't even yeah. funny, but I just wrote all this stuff. And I, and that stuck out to me. And when I told him that. And we started talking about comedy. He told me, he says, look, I don't know about comedy. I don't even know if you would be good at it. But what I've noticed is a complete change in your demeanor. Everything about you has changed. Mm -hmm. And so you should probably give this a a shot. Find a way to get more of this in your life. Now, prior to that, I'd always been a consumer of comedy. Like, I, you know, bought the albums, Mm -hmm. you know, went to, to comedy shows and stuff. But I never thought it was something that, that was for me, something that I could do. Mm-hmm. So that was early. I want to say, no, it was late 20, late 2011. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, life goes on. You, you know, I, I got books. I read books, yeah. watch stuff and try to get a handle on it. And then, yeah, my first time going up was July 5th. It was at Dr. Grants and Grand Rapids on a Thursday, July 5th, 2012. Mm. And so that's how I got into it. Thinking back to when you said you were a consumer of comedy, Mm -hmm. thinking back to that, who would you say were the top three that influenced you? Top three? You can do four if you want. Yeah, I mean, (laughs) everybody could go back and say Richard Pryor because if it wasn't him, it was somebody that was influenced by him. Right. Right. So, okay. He's one. There's this comedian named Franklin Ajay. 
I know him. Okay, yeah. I, I'm of that age, yeah. All right. So, yeah. you know, a lot of people, if you know him, you might know him from the movie Car Wash. Yeah. Right. But he was a very great stand-up comic in his own right. Yeah. Like he's he's fabulous. Uh he has a nickname the jazz comedian. Yeah. Like he's because of the riffing and all the stuff that he mm-hmm. does. And I and I happened upon his comedy on accident. Like it was just I was over to my auntie's house, and this was years ago. I could have I was maybe 10, something mm-hmm. like that. And he had this joke about wombats, and I don't know what the fuck. It was the it was the funniest shit to me. Uh-huh. Like to this day, I can't I can't even tell you what the joke is, but it just was hilarious. And I was like, "This is crazy! I got to find this dude." So, my dad got me a couple of his comedy tapes, and I listened to him. You know, back when you had cassette tapes, you oh yeah, listen to the shit until yep. you rub the film, yep. and the shit would stop. Yeah, yep. so <laughs> that was it. I, I listened, and you couldn't you back. couldn't see which side was side yep. one and two from the ink coming off. Yeah, yeah, and <laughs> so he was a huge influence. Just interestingly enough, he was a law school student. Oh, really? Yeah, he I, he he went to NYU for one year, and then he he dropped out to do comedy. Mm-hmm. So yeah, so he's he's an influence, and I would. If I had to pick a couple moms, maybe it would be another one. Okay. My dad loved her. My mom loved her. I grew up listening Mm -hmm. to her. And then if I had to pick somebody else, this is going to sound strange. It probably sounds strange, but Tommy Davidson. Oh, yeah. 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 Tommy Davidson. He had this special called Illin in Philly. And it came out in the early 90s. And it was just, he was so animated. He's so crazy. Uh-huh. And like people look at the stuff that he's doing and it seems like it's slapstick, but there's a real subversive kind of underlying message to a lot of the stuff that he says. If you go back and look at uh-huh. the stuff, you know, he's talking about police brutality and racism and all this other stuff, but he's right. talking about it in his own way. Yeah. You know, he, he was never somebody to come across as serious, like, oh, down with government type shit. Right. But you could tell that he had a very informed view on certain things. Mm-hmm. He just chose to dress it up and be kind of goofy with it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then Dave Chappelle, obviously. Yeah. Yes, you know, I it's, mean, it's funny. Tommy Davidson was just, I, I'm working from home a lot and mm-hmm. I had the TV on upstairs. I don't have one downstairs and I went upstairs and he was on a daytime talk show at one point this week. I don't remember what day it was, but I, okay. I saw him. And I'm, I, I'm like, Oh yeah, Tommy Davidson. And it's been, yeah. it's been a while since I'd seen him. Mm-hmm. I mean, he has a, you know, he's more, he, he's known, of course, for In Living Color and more of a comedic actor. Yeah. But he's a very, very solid stand up. Yeah. I mean, even, you know, he's still, he's still doing it to this day. Mm-hmm. You know? mm-hmm. So what I gather is somebody who does all the studying to take the bar exam and become an mm-hmm. attorney and work in the administrative law, which is a lot of reading and stuff like that and being prepared. I would imagine mm-hmm. that you probably spent that amount of effort and time in getting ready to do your first. Am I right oh, about man. that? It yeah. was crazy. <laughs> yeah. Like, you know, I'm, I, I like to read. I've always been somebody who liked to read stuff on how to do things. Yeah. I've never been much into trivia. I've always been more into what can I learn how to do? How can I learn how to do more things? Mm. And so when I started doing comedy, I took that same approach. Like I was looking for things to read about joke writing, about the 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 kind of art of being a stand up, the whole practice of it. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's this book and I've 
mentioned this book a million times to people. It's called Step by Step to Stand Up by Greg Dean. Okay. And it's a workbook. It's a joke book. It's, you know, about I've, this thick. That's one I've and, seen, uh, but I haven't gotten yet. Yeah. And it's, you know, couldn't be any more than 60 pages. Yeah. But that is the first, really the only book I've read about comedy more than once. Mm-hmm. You know, I've read it front to back. My copy that I have somewhere around the house has notes in it. I bought the audio book because I was driving it. When I was driving, I, w- I would listen to it. Mm-hmm. It's just a great book about how to write a joke. You know, before anything, you have to know how to write a joke. Mm-hmm. Like you have to know how to write. Like right. I don't care what what message, what your point of view is, what it is you're trying to talk about. You have to understand how to structure a joke. Mm-hmm. Right. And so I got all off into that. I was reading that. I read that thing a bunch uh-huh. and wrote a bunch of bad jokes that, <laughs> it, that hardly worked. And that was just kind of yeah. So that was my preparation thing. Yeah. Uh huh. Mm-hmm. So. With all the prep, was your first time on an open mic or what, what was your yeah. first time? Well, Dr. Grins, they do this thing on Thursday because it was in Grand Rapids at, at a club, Dr. Grins, and their weekend shows are Thursday, Friday, Saturday. Mm-hmm. And so what they do on Thursday, they have one show on Thursday. And instead of the MC doing time, they give five comics three minutes. Okay. So you come on, you do three minutes and then the feature act and then the headliner. Mm-hmm. And so my first time on stage was three minutes at Dr. Grant's uh-huh. and I didn't tell anybody I was going mm-hmm. cause I didn't want anybody to see me bomb. Yeah. And also kind of to myself, I wanted to think like, you know, I want to see if I can really do this. Like I don't want people to be there just laughing cause it's me. Yeah. So, you know, I wanted to give it a shot, you know, and it, it went, it went relatively well, you know, my first time. It was, mm-hmm. Yeah. It went all right. You know, it's funny, The I don't like to talk about my own stuff too much in an interview, but the last set I did was the comedy contest at, uh, at Dr. Okay. Grin's. Yeah. I think it was end, end of February. I was in the last of the of the uh, first bunch. And, first, yeah. Yeah, and probably the best set I've done. And mm-hmm. then, Nice, okay. Then we're locked in, so I've lost everything I did. So. <laughs> <laughs> do you record, do you, do you like audio record or video record um, just about every time now okay, yeah okay, and that good. one yeah. garrett recorded yeah, for me good. yeah 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 shout out to garrett man yeah yeah he, he's funny <laughs> have you he has this thing i'll call the bullet biter yeah session. have you have I, you heard that yeah i i actually pre-ordered it yeah oh man yeah, yeah. Shit is dope. it's dope it's a great concept it's very it's very funny and it's very informative well yeah. and that's that's when i i interviewed him a while back yeah. and i talked mm-hmm. about that being like a MC 101 thing Absolutely. that every Absolutely. MC should listen to it before mm-hmm. they do the MC thing. Um, it's, it's, it's kind of a, it's kind of a thing on public speaking, just mm-hmm. p- the act of public speaking, corralling a crowd. Yeah. You know, there are lots of instances in your life and it may not have anything to do with comedy where you got to get the attention of a bunch of people and manage all these different attention spans and all this other type of shit. Mm-hmm. It's a really good succinct way 
to watch somebody do that on the fly. Yeah. So yeah, it's very interesting. It's, it's, it's very well done. Yeah. I was, I was totally blown away by it and I pop it on in the car all the time just, mm-hmm. just because the, you know, I love the first half where he's doing the MC stuff and then he gets mm-hmm. into the material the way, the, stuff yeah. in the second half. But that first half is like, it's just a must listen for anybody who's going to be an MC. And mm-hmm. the thing about comedy is if you're good at being an MC, you, get noticed by the headliner and you get to do other stuff so if you do Mm -hmm. it well then then you get to move up in the world so that's great yeah it's not easy it's not an easy thing to do it's if you got a three-person comedy comedy show i would say that's the second hardest job yeah you know the feature act is the that's the sweet spot that's easy yeah you just come on do your shit and then you get out the way yeah (laughs) (laughs) get out the way and let them deal with the rest of that foolishness right right So at what age were you when you did that first three minute set? I was twenty nine. So twenty nine. So yeah. So I was old. I'm old. Like, and and as you far as comedy for starting, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I started when I was fifty, so I got you beat there. Oh, there you, uh, well, all right. You know. <laughs> <laughs> but but the after doing that three minutes, did you did you go home and say, okay, this is something I want to do? Did it scare you? What? How did you react to that? Yeah, when, after I got off stage, after that, I say, yeah, this is, I'm going to be doing this for for a while. I'm going to try to do this. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't even like, a, oh, I'm going to get rich or famous or be even a headlining comic. It's like, this is a good way for me to spend my time here. Mm-hmm. You know, so that's, that's the way I looked at it was, right. okay, this is something that I can do with my time that's productive, that's constructive that is artistic, but it's not, it's, it's kind of a form of service because people need to laugh Mm -hmm. more than anything. You know, that's that if you can make some people laugh, you know, that's definitely a plus. So, and it doesn't have to be all consuming if you don't want it to be right. Right. You get to, you get to choose what level you want to be. Well, you don't get to choose to be, have a, a Netflix special or something right, like that, right. but, but like, you have to work to for it. Into it. Yeah. But you know, yeah. if you want to, you know, stay regional or stay local or whatever, mm-hmm. you can, you can make that choice and, mm-hmm. and, and that's totally fine. And I, you know, it's funny, your story is so similar to mine because, you know, I've had depression all my life and okay. I've mm-hmm. had different ups and downs with it. And, you know, when I turned 50, I was like, you know, I, I've been with the same company for 15 years. I like what I do. I like the company, but man, I'm in a rut and I've got to mm-hmm. do something with my creativity. And I started doing that and that totally changed the game mm-hmm. for me. And I'm just like you. I don't. I don't want to be famous. I don't want to be a headliner. I just want to be good and have people say I made them laugh. That's all I want. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, when it comes to like headline, like I would say, like maybe twenty percent of what I do now, maybe twenty five percent of what I do now is headliner work. Mm-hmm. The rest of it is feature work. It's like you know, unless it's open mics, then you know I'm doing lots of those, working on jokes. But yeah, like, my. I never was trying to force the issue. Like I never been somebody to say like, I want to be this or I need to be this. Like uh-huh. I've found that if you wait until people ask you, it goes a lot. <clears throat> it goes a lot better for you. Uh-huh. Cause we deal with rejection a lot. 
Yeah. You kind of you did reject rejection a lot. Yeah. So anything you can do to kind of lessen a number of times that you get rejected. And it's like you kind of turn everything on its head because if somebody approaches you, then that means they're already a fan of what you do. Right. So that takes a lot of pressure off of mm-hmm. you to show up, do what you do, and then just kind of live with that. Cause you know, they called you. Yeah. So <laughs> that's been my thing. I've you know, I'm starting to like I'm I'm headlining Grand's Labor Day weekend. Okay. And I mean, well, I was. We'll see what happens. <laughs> um, well, they got Palisac there this weekend, so we'll see how that goes. For yeah, them. I mean, but shit, you know, they might. Uh, who knows? They might bump me for somebody who can sell tickets. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it is what it is. Yeah. I ain't, shit, you can't really, you know, do. That's how I look at it. Like, with, uh, we might as well just talk about this now. Like, with the way things are now. Who knows what these clubs are going to be yeah. facing, right? So I'm funny. Sure, I can handle a headliner weekend. I'm sure I'll do great. Mm-hmm. Am I on par with somebody who's doing theaters, who's a household name, who can get people out and pack a place? Mm-hmm. No. So would I rather keep my weekend and then have a club that's losing money go out of business or would you rather them do what they need to do to keep their doors open? Yeah. So they're still a club. Right. Right. So there's all different things. Now, granted, who knows? Of course, I would love to keep my shit. Yeah. <laughs> you, know, <laughs> you know, I would love to keep it. I work hard to get it. But, you know, you never know what the new landscape is going to be like. Yeah. So. And Dr. Grins is kind of a special place as far as comedy clubs go. I've I've been, you know, in clubs from there all the way down to Alabama and the there there's something about that club it reminds me a little bit of the comedy attic in Bloomington there it's kind of special they really seem to appreciate comedy as an art form there and they expect the patrons to act like it and and I like that yeah you you definitely want to play places that police the room mm. there's one of my you know, I got a lot of there are a lot of clubs I like, like Dr. Grand's Ann Arbor Comedy Showcase. Mm-hmm. If you've ever been there, that's a great room. I haven't seen that one. Mark really they police the room very well. Like mm-hmm. I had my headline weekend there, I had an incident with a guy and you know, it didn't go where everybody thought it was gonna go. Like, mm-hmm. you know, the guy said he was fight me and I said, Okay, well I'll be I'll be, <laughs> I'll be off work soon. Like I clock out, I'll be off work soon yeah. and I'll be outside. But he wasn't there. But they got him up out of there. You know what I'm saying? They don't play mm-hmm. that. Um, comedy Club on State. Comedy on State in Madison, Wisconsin is a great mm-hmm. comedy club. I've been there a bunch. Okay. That, place is, that place is fucking just, wow. Yeah. Fucking dope. <laughs> so, yeah, we, we got some pretty good ones. We got some pretty good ones in the Midwest. Yeah. Yeah. So... You do this open mic and you decide you're going to do it. What, you know, what's the next step for you? Did you keep doing the open mics for a while or how did Mm -hmm. that work? Well, I got lucky. I got really, I was very fortunate to come along and do comedy in the town that I did it at the time that I did it because, so that was July. And then I did Joey's, which is now closed. I did Ridley's open mic. Mm Mm-hmm. And I did a couple of other things. I did Sunday Night Funnies. I did a couple of other things. And then Labor Day, that Monday, that Labor Day, 
That was the first time I did Max Monday Comedy Night. Mm-hmm. And that was the first time I was on the show. And that was, I was around when that was kind of starting. And, you know, they had stage time. There was nobody there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it, it was comics and no crowd, like, you know, three or four friends of the comics, local people that show up every week. And I just kind of kept showing up every Monday. I was there every Monday. And then we switched it to a weekly show where we have regular people Mm -hmm. and then a rotating cast of people. So I just happened to walk right into that. Mm -hmm. I just happened to be in the right place at the right time. And so with that, that just kind of became a staple for me. Something mm. someplace that I always could do stuff. And we had a club back then called Connections Comedy Club mm. in Lansing. And, you know, it went out of they went out of business, I wanna say in twenty fifteen, like twenty fifteen, something like that. Okay. I could I could be wrong. It was about that time, I think. Maybe it was twenty fourteen. Mm. So they went out of business. But at the time it was still going. You know, so I did the open mic there. I got my first MC weekend there. And yeah, I mean, I just did open mics, just open mics everywhere, anywhere that that they would have me anywhere. You know, I just kept going, kept going. Like after July, I want to say when I hit like August, when I hit like September, I was going up like four nights a week. Okay. Five nights a week sometimes. That's and I had kind of been pretty. That was it. That was just my thing. That yeah. was what I did. Like all the other shit. I used to play. I used to play the guitar. I used to do a <laughs> bunch of shit. Yeah. All that shit just stopped. Uh, and that was my thing. So I kind of when I hit it, when I started, I just kind of jumped into it, uh, you know, because the way I was thinking, you know, I got started at 29. I was like, you know, can I do 10 years worth of work in five? Uh huh to kind of put myself on pace. That was my thinking originally. Turns out there is no pace. Yeah. That doesn't matter. Yeah. Just do your shit. You know, that mm-hmm. was so that's me knowing what I know now, that might've been, it, it let me work hard, but it wasn't a concrete approach. Like you don't have to make up time. Everybody literally goes at their own pace. Mm-hmm. So I, yeah, that's uh, the open mics. And then when people ask me to do stuff, I showed up and did the best I could. Yeah. So as much as you were going up, as far as materials concerned, did you like write every day and have new stuff going? Did you get into a, a kind of a system where you're writing all the time or how did that work for you? Yeah. I'm kind of a weirdo when it comes to like, my day, my life isn't organized, uh-huh. but when it came to comedy, I was pretty organized and pretty like, I don't know, meticulous in my, in my, you know, work. Uh-huh. So what I was doing, what I would do is I would I look at it like products. You know, you have your finished products, you have your developmental products, and then you have your stuff that you offer at a discount. Uh-huh. And so <laughs> when I had a joke, that I felt like it was good. It was solid. That goes, that's the, that's the signature product that goes over there. Mm. And I put all those jokes over there. So those are the jokes that don't get done at open mics. They don't get done at showcases. These are the jokes that I do. If somebody's willing to give me money. 
And then the other category are the jokes I'm still working on. I'm still trying out and all these new things. And then the third category is just the shit I thought up just yesterday. Uh And I try to keep everything separate like that. Yeah. So I was, I would write every day. I would write something every day, Mm -hmm. but it wasn't like I was making it a point to write every day. It's just, I had all these ideas and I had to get them down and get them on paper somewhere. Mm. So, yeah, I mean, I just kept writing and kept writing. So, yeah. That's a really good analogy. The, mm-hmm. the, the three different types of joke. That's great. Yeah. When we, you, and when you start moving up, like, okay. So like when you feature, like when I was, when I first started featuring, that's, that's like my discount product. You, you have to do that. Cause it's a new thing. You have to do that. Maybe at a rate that's lower than what you would do if you're MCing. If you've been MCing for a while, you got that down pat. Yeah. Don't let anybody lowball you on that price. That's your signature product. Like, no, you got to pay me yeah. X. That's what I do for this. Yeah. If it's feature act, okay, I'm not as experienced. I'm willing to take a little bit less to get that experience. Mm. But then when you get that together, then it's no, no discounts for that. Yeah. You know, so that's how you move your way up is you know, this is what I'm offering. When I started headlining, I was looking for opportunities to headline. For me, it was more so where can I go to get these minutes to get this together? Because this isn't something that like I'm very concrete on. This this is a new thing for me. Mm-hmm. But now, you know, when I, I've headlined enough now as to where it's not an it's not this isn't a new thing. So uh you're gonna have to go ahead and give me them fucking coins. You yeah. Know what I'm saying? So <laughs> that's funny i talked with this with matt brown last night when we when we were talking and that's one thing that comics have a hard time with is understanding what they're worth and they think they're getting paid for you know doing 30 minutes for a feature and they're actually getting paid for all the work that they put behind that oh yeah oh yeah that's a lot yeah and you know i'm a you know i've done charity shows i've done shows you know to raise my, I've done shows for free, but you're not going to fuck with my money. Like, yeah. <laughs> you're going to have to go ahead and give me that. Yeah. You know, when I ask for it, you're going to have to go ahead and give me that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that's one, that's, I think that's one benefit of being a little bit older when you start out because mm-hmm. you, you have, you've had to fight for money before. And, and, you know, I've done that so many times in my life, you know, for, you know, I've been in sales for a long time. So commissions okay, and stuff like yeah. that. So you, you, you have so to, you fight. used to people trying to get you. Yeah. Yeah. So you got, <laughs> you're, you're always negotiating and you're always, you're always in a fight and you're always uh, mm-hmm. on the offensive if you want to make any money at it. And mm-hmm. that is a good, that's a good style for a comic. Yeah. I mean, if you, <sighs> There's a certain thing that comes with it. Your product, your your product should speak for itself. Mm-hmm. So when you pick up the phone to call me, when you email me, you already know what you're going to get. Because I've been doing it. Mm-hmm. You know, you can count on certain things. So, the, you know, whatever it is that I do, that's a given. That's, you know, I'm pretty reliable with that. So I lead with that. Yeah. I don't have to, I'm not going to sit and try to talk nobody into paying me. I'm not going to like say I should, you should, 
you should do this. You should do no. You already know what it is when you fuck with me. Uh-huh. So when you pick up the phone and call me, have my money ready. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, yeah. give me my money. Yeah. But you do that just from working and just putting the work in and just trying to like if you work on getting good, work on getting as good as you can. You know, the more you put into that, the more you put into getting good and proficient, the less you should have to do on the other end. Right. When it comes time to get paid, because right. like, you know, people are no. Right. And the the stance of you better have my money is much better than, oh, do I get paid for this? Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. You know, yeah. Yeah, it's funny. I've done a few showcases here in South Bend, and the reason why I did them is because I wanted the comics who were working around here to understand what it's like to get paid. So, mm-hmm. you know, I they didn't get paid much, but I charged five bucks Something. at the door, and I yeah. said, I'm going to split it between y'all. And mm-hmm. every time I paid them, they were like, oh, I didn't know I got paid, And even though I told them up front. And, mm-hmm. and they said, well, I didn't expect that. And I'm like, you need to expect that you because you, you look, came look, out here and worked. Hold on, time, time. I want to say something real quick. Any show where they taking money at the door, uh-huh. if they don't give you some money, hit them in the head with a sack <laughs> of fucking nickels. That shit is theft. Yep. <laughs> don't be charging at the door, taking money and not paying the motherfuckers who doing the yep. work. <laughs> give up the money. Yep. Yep. I agree. <laughs> That's 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 a hundred percent with me. I I totally agree with that. So as you're coming up in Michigan, I you know I've just noticed that a lot of the Michigan comics seem it seems to be a really good group of people. Did you get them get in with some people that kind of helped you along? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, like I say again, I was fortunate to start in Lansing, Michigan, when I started because there just happened to be a group of people doing comedy at that time that I gelled with very quickly. Uh-huh. You know, Pat Sievert is one of my best friends. Dan Curry is one of my best friends. And it was Jason Carlin and Mark, Mark Roebuck. M- Mark is in Arizona now. And Jason's still here, but Jason doesn't do comedy as much. Mm. But like the five of us were just around. Yeah. And we just, just kind of, jailed you know and then yeah people the people in michigan the comedy scene in michigan is pretty supportive yeah you know like it's not as cutthroat as some other places you know that you hear stories about people backbiting and sabotaging that type of shit yeah. it, that hasn't been my experience you you know you're gonna have shitheads wherever you go <laughs> there's always be shitheads yeah but for the most part, people in Michigan have been pretty supportive, mm-hmm. you know, and welcoming. Uh, Pat's album came out, I think, right after Garrett's. I think it was maybe a yeah. month later because I pre-ordered his, too, and his is great. Yeah, yeah. dope, man. I was there. I was there. Uh-huh. I was there when it was happening, and I was like, man, this is going to be the shit. <laughs> I already knew. I was telling people, I was like, man, y'all need to get y'all asses down here. He down here putting in it, putting in at work, mm. and uh, yeah, it turned out great. One thing, as somebody who understands depression, and I, I don't like to harp on things, but as you started doing this and you'd been doing it for a few years, did you notice depression creeping back just because you were kind of in a grind and you were oh, doing the same yeah. thing? 
Well, you know, when you have depression, you have it. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? It's something that you have to manage your whole life. Mm. So it's like the best you can do is understand coping mechanisms and go to do counseling and take medication and all that type of stuff. Mm. But you're never going to get rid of this. It's going to be with you. So it'll just take different forms. It'll Mm. come to you at different times. If you're not sleeping well, if you have other stress in your life, if things aren't going, it's going to always be there. Mm. You know, it's a chronic thing. So, yeah. So it would, when you get worn down, like there was a time, there was a month, I want to say maybe 2016, something like that. I think I did like, 35, 36 shows in a month. Wow. Because I had a couple club weekends. And then there was a span where I did 20 some odd days of shows straight. Mm-hmm. You know, and I just ran myself down. And it was fine in the middle of it when I was doing it. Yeah. When I got tired, I just fell into like this huge just funk. And I was just, it was pretty bad, mm-hmm. you know, pretty bad. So, you know, yeah, it, it will creep back on. It will creep back in, you know, because I mean, it's going to always be with you. So yeah, right. The mm-hmm. good thing about it is, is when you're on stage, it all goes away. the 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 hard part is, is when it's coming back and you get off the stage, you feel so much worse than you did before you got on. <laughs> At least that's. Well, the, <laughs> I don't know. Sometimes, sometimes that's that's been my experience. Sometimes, but other times, like. I try to nip it in the bud. Like I can, I know myself enough now that I can start to see warning signs. Yeah. And, you know, I try to cope. I try to be proactive. I don't want this thing to get on me and then I have to worry about getting it off, getting it off my back. Yeah. Like if I realize that things are happening, I try to get ahead of them and stop them before they get too far. Yeah. You know? So, yeah, but I, I understand your point. You know, it's, I, I think it depends on what you try to do. You know, they say comedy shouldn't be therapy, mm. but any artist is going to do art that, you know, that centers on their thoughts. Mm. So I don't know if you're a depressed person. I don't know how you don't go on stage and talk about that. Yeah. Somehow. Mm. I'm not saying you whine or just woe is me. People don't want to pay to see that shit, Mm. but you have to talk. If something's on your mind that much, you got to talk about it. Yeah. You know, and there's a real, there's a common thread among comics. uh, Most of them, 90% of them that I've talked to that I know, first of all, they're extremely intelligent. They know current events and they've got some sort of mental health issues. Um, Mm -hmm. <laughs> and it doesn't it doesn't necessarily have to be you know the the crippling depression but they you know they they've got some issues and usually mm-hmm. usually came from early in life or whatever and it's just if if it's not a, a chemical disorder then something happened to them okay i got a question for you are you a sports fan you follow sports i hate sports you hate sports oh, shit. with a passion okay. All right. Well, you know, all right. I don't know if you know this, but I know about sports. So. OK, when it comes to baseball, uh-huh. most of the managers are, are catchers. Uh-huh. And part of that is because they watch. Mm-hmm. Your job is to watch the game. 
right? Mm. So you, you get in a squat and you yeah. sit there and you watch a game go by the whole time. And when it comes to basketball, a lot of the best coaches were reserves. They were on the bench mm. and they watch. That's how they got to understand the game because yeah. they had to watch it. It's very hard to be good at a game when you're in the middle of playing it mm. because everything's going on around you. You're focused on your part. Right. You don't get to see the bigger picture. Yeah. So when you deal with comics, a lot of comics are observant because we spent our lives watching mm. because we weren't in the middle of the game. So when you grow up and you watch, you sit up, you watch people all day because you're not in the thick of it. Mm. So you sit up and you watch people all the time. You become very observant of human nature and you start to notice patterns and things and you start to observe people and you become kind of a, a, a you know, you study human behavior. Mm-hmm. So yeah. uh, that's, that's the thing. A lot of comics, if nothing else are very observant people. Yeah. And part of the thing with observing things and being observant is you see a lot of fucked up shit. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> and it's hard to shut that off. Yeah, it is. You know, are you, has this ever happened to you where you see something you're like, I know I'm not the only one that saw that. Why yeah. is nobody doing anything? Yeah. Right. Yeah, I, I have, that shit happens to me every day. I'm mm-hmm. like, come the fuck on. I know I'm not the only one who sees this. Yeah. <laughs> and you get stuck in that position a lot as a comic, you know? Yeah. Most stuff. Yeah. I One of the things, and I don't know if this is something that happens to you, when you get in a comedy writing mindset, you feel like your whole life is writing, you're looking for the next bit. And mm-hmm. sometimes it's hard to get out of that and actually just be part of your life. Do you get into that too? Yeah, yeah, I'll get into that. I, I, I start to take a break. One thing I notice is, when I start writing comedy about comedy, mm-hmm. it's time to stop. Yeah. <laughs> you got too close to it. When you start writing this inside baseball stuff, yeah. where it's like, it's funny to you and it's funny to your friends, but y'all are comics. Yeah. <laughs> it doesn't translate as well. So when you start to do that, it's time to take a stop and take a step back and kind of refocus. Mm. You know, I, the older that I've gotten, the longer I've been doing this, the more I, I've got, I've gotten better at living my life and letting the comedy, the jokes come in when they come in. Because mm. when you start doing it, you're always writing. Even when you're not writing, your brain is working. Once you've trained your brain to start doing stand-up comedy, that's just how it works. Mm. Like, I remember when I was in law school, the first year of law school completely rewired my brain. I don't even remember how I used to solve problems anymore. (laughs) Like, I swear to God, I don't like it'll take you like when I first started seeing when I I first got to law school after my first year, if before I started law school, if if you pointed at a bike and you asked me what that was, I say it was a bike. Mm. Now it's not a bike. It's two tires. It's a frame. It's handlebars. It's pedals. And that's what you learn in law school. You learn to break shit down yeah. into its parts mm. because the parts are what make it what it is. And so when you start to be, when you start doing comedy, you start to see things in joke form, mm. just your life. Just, it's like, uh, you just look at things and they're jokes to you. That's just how, yep. at least for me yep. anyway, when I see a thing, I see it like it's a joke. Yeah. 
kind of. And a lot of the writing is already kind of done in my head. And when I sit down to write it down, the more I do comedy, the more fully formed the jokes are when I first start Mm. to write, you know. I have to say that I normally turn this off the halfway point, but I've got at least 18 people watching now. And uh, I don't okay. want I, I don't want to rob them of this great conversation, so I'm going to keep right. it. That's right. Yeah, we, I, that's right. I, I maybe I am a draw on <laughs> Facebook Live. That's right. So I'm going to keep it going, <laughs> but I would ask that you all look up Behind the Bits podcast and subscribe because this is how I talk to everybody. I've got a lot of great interviews. I think I've got 25 up now. And I saw the Matt Brown one. It was very good. Yeah, he's a very funny guy. Yeah, and uh, that's the one where the audio needs some work. So. <laughs> we, we may be doing that again. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that was funny. I enjoyed that. But yeah, I'm going to keep it going since you guys are watching and just check out the podcast. Any new listeners I get, I appreciate it. Thinking about the first time that you just absolutely slayed an audience, do you, people tend to remember that. Do you do you remember that? And how did it feel? And how did that change the way you did comedy? Well. I think that like the first time that I really just like mad, like, are we talking like shorter sets or like just longer sets? Like well, really any, you know, that first time that you just really, it, it just, just hit you that, went, you yeah. know, you were on, you just hit all. Yeah. yeah. I would say the first time that I, I felt like I just really just murdered was the first round of funniest person in Grand Rapids the first time I did it. Okay. Which it was just, how can I put this? I'm a big fan of anniversaries and dates and Mm. that type of stuff really resonates with me. Mm. And so the first time that I did funniest person was January 9th of 2013, Mm. which is the day before my 30th birthday. So I was, I was at Dr. Grin's. I turned 30 at midnight Mm. that night after the first round. Me and Pat actually made it through the first round together Mm. into the semifinals. And it just was one of those things, man. Like, maybe it was because I felt good because my birthday was coming up. Mm. You know, I had some people in the crowd, and maybe I felt confident. I don't know what it was, but I just came through, and it was just like, it it was just bananas man like i just hit all the right notes at the right time Mm. the jokes were set up in the right spot and it it was it was almost effortless Mm. you know it was one of those things like i hate to keep using metaphors and uh, analogies but if you ever hit a home run swinging a bat the ones that go the farthest are the ones where you don't even feel you don't even feel the ball yeah you swing and you just hit it right on the right spot. And it's almost like you swung at air. Maybe you thought you even missed the ball, mm. but it just was perfect. Yeah. And all you see is you just see the fucking ball just take off. Yeah. And that's kind of what it was. It was almost like, I was like, damn, are they, I felt like I could say anything. Uh-huh. And they would just laugh. Yeah. But that just was, cra- it just was crazy to me. Yeah. You know? That's um, funny. Um, the the funniest person the the last set I did was my best set too, and and that's when I about six months prior I've been messing around with the stand up for 
five years, almost mm-hmm. six years now. And I really got um, serious about it. And mm-hmm. I did, I did the uh, Sunday night funnies. I, I started getting out of my comfort zone, stopped right. you know, going just to the drop and stuff like that right, right, right. in South mm-hmm. Bend and start. And I did one in Kalamazoo, one of the mics there and started Louis, seeing different Louis? people. And I'm sorry. In Kalamazoo, was it Louis? Uh, it wasn't Louis. It was, wait a minute. Is what, Louis what upstairs? Is Oh no, that's, oh shit. I know what you're talking about. Harvey's? Yeah, Harvey's. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. That, yeah. That play, that's good. Yeah. Harvey's is cool. Yeah. So mm-hmm. I really worked for it and I got up there and I didn't, I, I didn't go through the only person who knew me in the audience was my wife. So yeah, I definitely didn't get the audience, hard, but people, yeah, but people came up to me afterwards and said, man, you're really good. You need to do mm-hmm. this. And, and that I felt so good about it. Uh, and of course it's recorded and I went back and watched it and I knew every mistake I made when I watched it. But mm-hmm. then I remembered the way the audience responded. And I'm like, it's okay. You can make mistakes. Yeah, I don't know. They didn't you know. Made them. And, mm-hmm. <laughs> and that's something you got to get over too. That's something, you know, if you're like a perfectionist, if you're somebody who sees every flaw and, you know, impurity in what it is you're trying to create, you got to take those performances for what they are. There's space and time. Yeah where people have sat down and decided to give you their attention. And if they're enjoying it, then you're, you must be doing something right. And yeah. just kind of leave it at that. Yeah. You know? And that's one good night. You, you mm-hmm. haven't made it just because you did no. that. You, you still have to be critical and you still have to write, but mm-hmm. uh, in, in some form you have to enjoy the wins that you get too, because yeah. uh, if you don't, it's not fun anymore. No. Yeah. <laughs> yeah thinking thinking about you know let, let's get into the time we're in now so we are recording this on the uh, 18th of june 2020 for anybody mm-hmm. that listens five years from now mm-hmm. so we're we're in the middle of a uh, pandemic and, in, and anybody that says we're at the end of it you're wrong yeah. we're we're in the middle they of can it go outside if they think it's the end go ahead yeah go on outside i'll be in here wear your damn mask and and we're also in the middle of uh really uh, a a race war right now and you know we the the black lives matter is so forefront and it's it's the con- the country's been divided but we're everybody's divided on that too you know I want to talk about how we come out of that and how comedy changes and how maybe we can help change minds. I just, before I start, I just want to push back on something that you say real quick, just a little bit. I don't, I don't consider this a war. It's not a war until there's casualties on both sides. Okay. Yeah. So what we have now is just state sponsored terror. Mm Mm-hmm. And people haven't decided to start killing back yet. Mm. So, I mean, to to your point, I agree. I think that this is strife. This is, you know, it's very much a divided country. It's always kind of been a divided country. The country was never together to begin with. You know, Mm. the foundation is cracked. So it's like, it's hard. You can, you can add new window treatments if you want, but if the foundation of the house is cracked, it's fucking cracked. Mm. So you got to fix that. The current, pr- Oh, also I want to take a minute and say this, fuck the police. Okay. <laughs> Be sure to say that. <laughs> now back to what I was saying, I think the current president that we have, a lot of people want to put this on him, 
But if anything, he's like racist clearasil. Yeah. Like he brought the shit to the surface. Yeah. Like it's already been here. He's just drawing it all up mm. to where everybody can see what it is. You know? So he's a shithead, mm-hmm. but he wouldn't be able to do what he's doing if it wasn't already here. Mm. So, so yes, but as far as what we can do, like your, your question was, how can we change things? Mm-hmm. What can we do? Telling the truth in America gets you killed. So, you know, if you look at the people who stood up and, and spoke their truths, a lot of them they end up dead. Mm-hmm. Uh, but one way you can tell the truth in America is if you make people laugh when you do it. Mm-hmm. So that's one way that you can get by with giving America a dose of truth is if you can do it in the form of humor, then you can, you can help the, pe- you can help the people who are open to change kind of see what's going on. Mm-hmm. You can help those people. There's some people that you don't, that aren't going to change regardless, but there are some people who maybe you can shift their viewpoint a little bit. You give them a, a perspective that they didn't think of before. Mm-hmm. If you could do that in the form of humor, excuse me, excuse me. If you can do that in the form of humor, then that makes it that much easier for them to digest. Right. Mm-hmm. And talking about this as a white person who grew up in a small, all white town and had an extremely racist great grandfather to the point where I'm pretty sure he was in the clan and hearing the things that I heard and um, saying the things that I said and allowing the things to be said that were said in my presence, I feel like racism isn't something that you're ever cured of. I feel like it's almost like addiction that you can go into recovery. And mm-hmm. the only way to stay in recovery is to point it out when it happens and and make it a point to say, hey, this is wrong. Mm-hmm. and teach your children that way because you're not born with it it's it's definitely taught and right. and i feel like comedy is one of the things that helped me understand what race is about mm-hmm. and and you know richard pryor was one of them and you know i I hate to say it, but Bill Cosby, I had all his records, you know. And yeah, let's not pretend like Bill wasn't funny. Yeah, yeah. He was a whole bunch of other shit. Yeah. But he, let's be honest, like, yeah. motherfucker was funny. Mm-hmm. But he's a rapist and shit, and he's yeah. in jail. Yeah. That's that's good. Yeah. But yeah, <laughs> like, let's not lie about his influence on things, because he was funny. A lot mm-hmm. of people learn from him. Yeah. And one of the one of the things I learned, and it's one of my earlier podcasts. It's Doctor Peter McGraw. He he's written a couple books on comedy, and he's a behavioral scientist. And we talked in length about. I talked about the fact that the music of the '60s didn't change anything, but it told people what was going on. So, and and he came up with. He came back at me with a very interesting concept. He said, "Well." That means that the music was a thermometer, and comics can either be a thermometer or a thermostat, which means they're either telling you what's going on or they're changing minds by what they say. Mm-hmm. And I feel like that is something that's going to be important coming out of this. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I mean, I think as as observant people, it would be weird to go on stage and not have nothing to say mm-hmm. about what's going on. You know, like my identity is central to who I am. I'm a black man in America. It would be weird for me to go on stage and not have nothing to say about that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, my race informs everything that I do. It's the lens through which I see the world. So it's not like I'm saying certain things because it's like the black agenda. Black is just who I am. That's just what I am. Right. You know, and it's like, that's just how I see things. So, you know, I'm try try my best to be honest and tell the truth as I see it, my truth, I guess, and then let the chips fall where they may. Mm -hmm. I wasn't always like this, though. See, here's the thing that people get into. You start doing things and you just want to go on stage and talk about whatever it is you want to talk about. I used to I used to do jokes about Little Caesars Pizza. Mm -hmm. That was like the first one of the first jokes that I ever had that Uh was solid was about Little Caesars Pizza. Mm. Now, I didn't get into comedy to do jokes about Little Caesars Pizza. I always had designs on talking about other things, but I had to learn how to write a joke first. Mm. And one thing I've learned, if you're going to piss white people off, you have to be sound. You have to be technically sound when you do it. So it's not good enough to just be funny. You have to be sound. Like, the shit that you're saying, it has to be real sound. Uh You know? So you're being seen with a lot more critical eye than a white comic. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So if I'm going to say the stuff that I say, it has, it has to work. It can't not work. Mm -hmm. So that's why I put, tried to put so much emphasis on writing and technical, you know, technical Mm -hmm. ability. Yeah. You know, and, and comics really, you kind of have to do the little Caesars jokes to start out to find yeah. out what a joke is about and also yeah. uh, what an audience is about. Because yeah. if you if you look at Pryor and you look at Carlin, those are two of them that evolved so much. Absolutely, uh, and absolutely. They went from just plain old joke tellers. And I mean, if you if you play their albums from from the first one to the last one, it's a different person totally. Mm-hmm. And but they they that doesn't mean that they didn't have those sensibilities when they yeah. were doing the, the little Caesars jokes yeah. of their type, but it means that they got to a point where they could do that. Well, I, I'll, I'll liken it to, again, here I go with these analogies. I'll liken it to being a, being a doctor. Mm. Like you have medical students and then you have general practitioners and you have specialists. And so the further along you get in a profession, if you become a specialist, then that means you wouldn't go to a general practitioner and ask them to do brain surgery. Right. Certain things are just tougher to do than others. Mm. And so you have to have that background. Right. So you don't, but you don't get to brain surgeon status without going through all those steps. Mm. So you have to understand the body. You have to understand medicine and science and all the other stuff. And then you, those are the foundation, the building blocks for you to become whatever it is, whatever specialist you're going to become. So these are important topics, racism, sexism, religion, all these other things. They're very important topics. I feel like 
they should be handled carefully. That doesn't mean that they shouldn't be handled. Right. And I always wanted to wait until I felt like I could talk about something and give it the kind of like respect it deserves. You know what I mean? Mm. I could talk about it and have the ability, the, the technical know-how and the seriousness to write something that isn't just yeah. <laughs> people are weird. Right. Yeah. I don't want to do that. That's stupid. I wanted to wait. And also I wanted to wait until I had something to say that was different from everybody else. Like, yeah. If you write a joke and it's the same as everybody else, then you didn't write a joke. Mm-hmm. Like, don't tell that joke. Just leave that shit alone. Hold on to it. Make it different from other people. So whatever you're saying, you're adding something to the discussion. Mm-hmm. You know, so like I don't talk about my marriage, really. You know, I've been married. I'm married 2007. I've been married for a long time. Mm-hmm. Things are good. I like it. I don't have anything new to add. Mm-hmm. I haven't come up with anything new to add. So I don't have nothing to say right now. Mm. Maybe if I come up with something new, maybe I'll say something. But until then, like any joke I have, you probably already heard. So it's like, why the fuck would I say it? Yeah. Yeah. You know? So I I don't know. A couple of days ago, I posted this status on Facebook about people not doing jokes about race. And the reason that people, you you hear people say, I don't do race. I don't do politics. I don't do these jokes. Because you don't know what the fuck you're talking about. (laughs) Yeah. Like, that's why. Like, you shouldn't because you don't know anything. Yeah. Like, if you're coming from a place of ignorance, then, yeah, you probably shouldn't tell that fucking joke. Mm Because it's probably going to get you in trouble. And people are going to be like, he's a shithead. Yeah. So, like, learn some stuff. Read some stuff. Like, all comics, all good comics are researchers. Yeah. You got to do your research. Mm. You do your research on the thing. You know, you know, we all aren't perfect. Like I just did a, I made a joke about a guy and it was fucked up. I didn't do my research. So I had to go back and apologize because I (laughs) fucked up because I didn't read. You know what I'm saying? So nobody's above it. We all make mistakes. Everybody fucks up. You know what I'm saying? But you have to like learn from it and try to do better. You know what I'm saying? And in this social media world, it's very easy to do a knee jerk and the, paying for it. That's exactly what happened to me. Yeah, mm-hmm. I've I've done the same thing myself, and it, mm-hmm. you know, it just you 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 start looking at what's real and and what uh, you read, and it's two totally different things. You know what I've learned about social media is that people appreciate a good joke, even if it's late. Yeah. So sometimes something will happen and I'll wait a whole week before I say anything because mm-hmm. I want to see if somebody else is going to say it. Yeah. So if a week goes by and nobody said it, then I'll say what I'm going to say. And I know that like, okay, this is pretty unique. And then, you know, people still will think it's funny. Yeah. You know, so there's nothing wrong. Everybody is kind of in a rush to be first. Like, you can be first or you can be good. Mm-hmm. It's very rare that it'll be both. Right. A lot of times the first thing you think of is the first thing a lot of people will think of. And then y'all just got the same joke. Yeah. Yeah. If you follow Twitter the you and you do yeah. the keywords, you, you see the same thing written. A couple and of people ways. jack your shit, too. Like, man, I'll, I'll see my jokes all over the Internet. <laughs> 
Like he would gank my shit. Like and it, and will smooth put that shit up using the same words I used. Like I don't know, y'all just stole my shit. Come on, man. I know you don't even talk like that. Well, nobody stole my shit, so I, yeah. I guess you don't I'm not... know. You don't know if somebody yeah, stole your I shit. The internet it, yeah. is a big place. The internet, it's a big <laughs> place. People steal all the time. Mm. One of the things you know, I've I've watched uh, a few of your sets, and you don't talk about your marriage, and it's funny because that's about all I talk about in my act because we've been together thirty-seven years, and and that's yeah. been my life. Which and, is nothing wrong with that. Yeah. But you do you do talk about your parents and you you talk about your mom passing and and, mm-hmm. and and things like that. That personal take that you do and when I watched that one especially, it drew me in even though I wasn't in the audience. And I felt like that that was just something that was I made a connection with you even though I didn't know you yet. Oh, okay. Well, that's that's good. That's good to hear. Yesterday was my mom's birthday. Oh, wow. She was yeah, she been sixty five. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, yeah. And, and it's uh, yeah, it's it's like I say, you got to write about what's on your mind. Yeah, and like the joke. I don't know if, if you're talking about the joke about her passing away. Yeah, that was that one. I, I wrote that this. I wrote that the, the day she died because wow. it literally happened the day like it was that happened. Yeah. So I wrote it that day, and then I took it and I did it at Max, and she died on Sunday, mm. September 9th. She died on Sunday, and so. I did it at max the next day. Wow. And it's just, you know, you work on a joke, it grows, you change it, you mm-hmm. know, take this out, put this here, put that there. But yeah, that just kind of came to me and I just wrote it down kind of how it went down and then just kind of made it funny. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. So I did mean, that help you with your grief at all? Yeah. Yeah. It helped. It helped. It helped. Cause my mom always had a sense of humor. She is really funny, funny woman. And so morbid, you know, yeah. like she had kind of a morbid sense of humor. So like things she would find that funny. <laughs> she mm-hmm. would find that type of thing funny. Yeah. So, you know, it helped. You know, it's. It, I don't know. Is, are your parents still alive? Or I, I lost my mom when she was. Well, it's been twenty one years. Ago. Oh, wow. So okay. I, I lost her quite a while back, but my dad's still alive. OK, well, that's good. That's yeah. good. My dad's still alive, too. It's like. It hurts. It still hurts. Yeah, I'm sure. You know what I'm saying? Like it's not anything you'll ever get over. Mm. But the 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 I, what I found is that the longer that I've been removed from when she passed away, the more I'm starting to think of the good times, the yeah. funny times. Yeah, because right? she had cancer. That was the tail end of her life. She still had a very. She still lived a lot of years before all that. Mm. So you start to you start to think of those things and remember those things, and. That joke, it helped. It was very raw when I did it. You know what I'm saying? But I had to do it. Mm. That wasn't something that I could just write and then just put in a notebook and never talk about. Mm. Like some things you have to you have to address them and, and, and kind of get them out there right when you start doing it. Mm. You know? And uh, yeah, it, it helped. I mean, it's it's been good. It's a it's a good thing. I'm glad I wrote it because at least like if I do a club weekend, at least once a weekend, somebody will come up to me and say, yeah, mom, I lost my mom too. Mm. You know, sometimes it's from cancer. You know, so many people die from cancer. Yeah. And like, they thank me. People will thank me for saying that. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Which 
wasn't something I thought about when I wrote it. I mm. wrote it for me. Right. You know what I'm saying? But you connect with people, you know, when you share certain things. And it's like there, there are lots of jokes that I want to write and lots of things I want to get into about my faults and my problems and like my shortcomings. Mm. You know what I mean? It's hard to get into them when the country's on fire. Yeah. So like I'll go to write some stuff that's personal. That's really doesn't make me look like the best person. Cause you know, everybody has that side of them. That's not good. Mm. But then good old racism will get in the way. Yeah. And I'm like, Oh man, I should probably say something about this. And I get sidetracked, but my mom dying was a very real, very disruptive thing. Mm. And it's, you know, something like that is something that you have to address. And, you know, mortality is a very tough subject for, for people. Right. And so that was something I just had to, I just had to do. I felt like I had to do it. Right. And and I feel like, you know, the guy that, that thanked you for it, because when I watched, I felt the same way. And even though it's tough to do, people appreciate it when you do it right and, Mm -hmm. and make them laugh about it. Yeah. Vulnerability is something it's really, it's, I've had some, like, I have a couple of jokes that are really kind of fucked up mm-hmm. where I talk about things that I think or things that I've done. And each time you reach in there to do that and pull it out, if you're, I'm telling you, if you're scared about it, you're on the right track. Like, if you say something and you're like, this is going to make me look bad. Mm-hmm. Oftentimes, those are the biggest laughs because yeah. you're saying the shit that the people in the crowd have done mm-hmm. and they've thought the same thing, but they won't say it. Right. You know, so it's like, you know, I'm not saying you got to go in there and be like, oh, I'm a sexual deviant. Yeah. <laughs> but like, when you talk about unflattering things, if you talk about them in the right way and you expose yourself, you expose, you know, you become vulnerable. It's a, it's endearing. And like somebody like me, as critical as I am of this country and of all of the shit that's going on, it would be kind of shitty if I wasn't critical of myself too. Right. You know, it's easy to shit, sit and shit on everything if that's what you want to do, but you should probably look at yourself too. Yeah. Yeah. None of us are perfect. And right. we, we, we all do stupid shit. Right. And a lot of it comes from the stuff that we've learned along the way and just our own weird brains. So, you know, mm-hmm. no, nobody's, nobody's even close to perfect. So you, yeah. you, I'm a sexist. I'm a sexist person because uh-huh. I grew up in America and it's dominated by a man. Right. Uh-huh. So I'll never not be sexist. You know, all I can do is try to not do it and apologize when I'm wrong Mm. and try to learn from it. You know, so I take I try to tell white people that, too. You got to look at it like if you grew up in this country, you're racist if you're white because you were raised in it. It's everywhere. It's pervasive. Mm -hmm. You know, like. One thing I always find funny is like when you think about like the old like television shows like Happy Days 
and like all of those, right? Mm-hmm. They always had that one episode on racism, right? Yeah. And it just so <laughs> happens that the family that's the star of the show, they're the one not racist family yeah. on the whole show. <laughs> on, the whole, on the whole neighborhood, like the Cunninghams, uh-huh. right? They're the ones that weren't racist. Yeah. Just happened to be, just so happened to be them. Mm-hmm. They were the ones that were cool with yeah. black people. And like, that's how well, in America back then being racist was the default setting. Yeah. It was everywhere. Now you see who's being taught, who's being actively taught racism at yeah. home. Cause there's certain shit you wouldn't know at five unless somebody told you. Yeah. Cause it's not out. It's mm-hmm. not out in television. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? All these slurs, all this other shit. They're not saying on television. They're not saying it in, you know, general spaces where we all move and navigate, you had to be learning that shit from someplace else. And you're getting it from your parents and people that are around you that are racist. Mm. You know, what you said there is so right, right on the money is every white person is racist. And Mm. I, like I said before, I agree with you a hundred percent. And any white person that says they're not racist, they, they're, it's probably more racist than, than average. They're, they're, they're lying. And mm-hmm. it's funny. I really only understood that myself. Patrice O'Neill was the one that, that made me understand it when he started talking about racist and racial and how being racial just by noticing something is different about somebody who's black or brown or uh, Asian or whatever you just by noticing that that is being racial and that is pretty much the same as being racist just mm-hmm. noticing the differences and not embracing them mm-hmm. and so you know I I really understand that and the the only the only problem is, is I don't think that you're ever going to get white people fully invested in it until things are happening that are happening now. We need, I think we need to be kind of slapped into, into understanding uh, what the world really is. Well, well, you know, okay. I'll put it like this. I think, I think, one of the things that gets lost is gets lost in the shuffle is what is equality? What does equality look like? Mm. Right. And so what do people want? Right. Cause I think a lot of people don't understand what black people want by and large, what we want, mm. like what we consider equality. So I'll tell you, I'll put it to you like this. Uh, give you an example. Let's say I call you up on the phone. I'm like, Hey, I, hey, Scott! I got, I got a car. I'm going to give you a car. You can pick between two cars, right? Mm-hmm. Do you want the white car or do you want the black car? And I didn't tell you anything else. Mm-hmm. You would probably have more questions, mm-hmm. right? Because it could be anything. The white car could be a Benz. The black car could be, I don't know, a broke down Kia with no engine. Yeah. Like you need more information, right? Because the color isn't determinative that just the sheer color isn't going to be enough for you to make your decision. Mm. It's just a descriptive. It's a descriptive thing. It's not a determinative thing. However, if I called you on the phone and I said, I know that you're looking for a car and you submitted a loan application, 
Would you want your loan application to be considered like a black person or a white person? You know the answer yep. to that, right? Yep. There you go. Then that's mm-hmm. the difference, right? Yep. The difference is those two things, that's a determinative thing. It's not a descriptive thing. Mm-hmm. You know, like if I tell you, if I ask you if you want to be paid like a black person or a white person, know what the answer is. Mm-hmm. If I ask you, do you want a do you want to be treated by the police? like a black person or a white person, you know what the answer is. Mm. So until that doesn't matter, we aren't equal. Right. So the minute that that becomes a, a descriptive thing and not a determinative thing, we aren't equal. Mm. So that's what we're looking for. We're looking for the day that I can say that to you and you don't know what the fuck I'm talking about. Yeah. Like, what do you mean? De- evaluated like a black person or white person. Mm. What do you mean by that? Until we get to that point, then we're not equal. And it's not like people, you know, want to frustrate and, you know, like kind of muddy the waters. It's a very simple proposition. I just don't want to be held back. I'm not asking to be given anything because I'm black. I'm just sick and fucking tired of it. Costing me every fucking thing. That's what I'm sick of. Mm. It shouldn't cost me. It costs me. Think about it like this. Think about all the money that black people have paid in taxes to the police. Think about that. Mm. I pay my taxes just like any fucking body else. I don't get any protection from the police. If anything, they're the ones killing me. Mm. So imagine all the money I've given away to the police and they don't they would much rather shoot me in the fucking head than protect me. Mm-hmm. Think about the money that I've put into the school systems where they teach fucked up things about black people. Like all of that, mm-hmm. all of that, all the taxpayer, all of that shit. I've been giving my money since forever. As long as I held a job, I've been paying taxes. Mm-hmm. And I ain't been getting shit for it. Right. So like that's the thing. That's why black that's part of the reason that black folks is fed up with this shit mm. and it's not going, you know, this shit is done. We're done right. with this shit. And I get, I guess what I would ask you, you know, <laughs> this is getting pretty far away from a comedy podcast, but uh, <laughs> what, what, what I would, what I would ask you is what do you think a white person can do to actually make a difference? I think that white people get addicted to doing the things that feel good it's like working out your favorite exercise probably isn't going to be the one that makes the biggest difference the one that hurts like burpees Mm -hmm. (laughs) like think about like how the motherfuckers is effective right like okay don't do arm curls yeah that's Mm -hmm. cool but do burpees, do squats, do compound exercises to build your body up. Mm. If you're a white person and you want to help, do things that make other white people mad at you. That's the thing. Mm. If you if you're one thing you got to recognize as a white person is if you're a white person and you want to do you want to do some good to as far as race is concerned, one thing you have to realize is that you're in the minority. Mm. Most of y'all don't. So get comfortable with most of the people who looking like you, who look like you, not liking you. Mm-hmm. 
that it is what it is. Like if you go around and you start making enough noise, you start trying to overturn shit and make people mad. Them other white people ain't going to like you. Mm. If that's a problem for you, then you're going to have a problem because motherfuckers don't like you changing shit. Okay. And they feel betrayed, especially when it comes from you because they wasn't expecting it. Mm. Like when I go on stage and I talk about race, some of the weirdest things happen. Like white, a lot of white folks in the audience, some of them might fuck with me and be upset, but they look at me before you, what you think I'm going to say? <laughs> what the fuck you think I'm going to say? Look at me. You uh-huh. think, what do you think I'm going to say? Everything's fine? Like, no. You, I'm probably going to say this shit you think I'm going to say. Mm. Like, there's this joke that I was telling about Trump. Like, it wasn't even a joke. I just say, look, I think about President Trump, what you think somebody who looks like me would think about that motherfucker. Mm-hmm. Like, that's, that's yeah. it. <laughs> like, we've addressed it. Yeah. Okay. But when white people, like, I know white comics that do very good jokes on race and all this other stuff, they get fucked with the most because the crowd will feel betrayed. Like, they wasn't expecting it from them. Mm-hmm. So they come at them, right? You have to be comfortable with motherfuckers not liking. Mm-hmm. That's the first thing is you people ain't going to like you get comfortable with that. The second thing is a lot of work that goes on should really be out of the presence of black folks, unless you're trying to amplify them and give, make sure they have a voice and make Mm. sure they have the resources that they need to do their thing. A lot of times y'all have access to rooms that we can't get in. Y'all hear conversations that we can't hear. Y'all get emails that we certainly don't get. Mm -hmm. All of these things that go on, they don't have shit to do with us. That's where you need to be making your noise and shit. White people like snitching. Tell tell them somebody. Get the motherfuckers fired. Like if you, you know, y'all like telling on motherfuckers all day. Y'all sit up telling people all day. If it's somebody at your job that's being racist, tell on them motherfuckers. Get them fired. That shit is dope. Yeah. Like people like that shit. I love to see motherfuckers get fired for doing that dumb shit. Like they post some shit like, oh, the blacks. And then like an hour later, you see the motherfuckers is like, uh-huh. they Backpedal like a motherfucker, right? <laughs> yeah, they try to keep that job. Fuck that. Get them fired. Uh, if it's people you know that ain't shit and they racist, tell on them. Mm-hmm. Snitch. This is a t- snitching is good. Yeah. In, the, in this instance. So like, but but to make a long story short, like you have to be okay with people not liking you. Right. You have to get comfortable with that. Mm-hmm. If you call yourself an ally and white people like you too much, then you're not doing the shit right. They shouldn't like you because mm. you're trying to take away the shit that they want to keep. Mm. So that's, I guess, you know, I can't, it's hard. Like, I can't tell people what to do because I don't know people's circumstances. Yeah, You know what I'm saying? I don't know what type of money you got. I don't know what type of field you're in. There isn't a, like, end all, be- there isn't a panacea of you know, it's like one. It's not one specific thing I can tell anybody to do. Right. You know what I'm saying. So there's this one thing. I guess I posted this a while ago, and people liked it. So I guess I'll repeat it. There's a there's an analogy I use. I know another analogy. The way I think of it is like you can be a shield, a sword, or a purse. Right. And so when I say that, what I mean is like if you're a shield, you get in the way and protect people from harm. Mm-hmm. So you 
put yourself in the way of harm in order to shield the people that you're trying to help. Mm. You go out, if you're a sword, you go out and you attack. Okay. You strike things down. You fuck things up. Mm. You know what I mean? And if you're a purse, you have resources, you have money, you have time, you have all energy, you have all these things that you can give to a cause. Give those things. Give those things to the groups. Ask them how they can use you. Mm. If you have, you know, let's say you are, you have like a graphic design degree, or let's say you like knitting, like whatever it is that you like doing, see how you can do that to provide resources for these people Mm. that you want to help. You know what I mean? So, yeah. So that's what I would, I guess that's what I would say. Okay. That means I got work to do. Yeah. Everybody do. Everybody do. I mean, you know, this, you know, it's like, and everybody want to go out and protest. Like not everybody should be out there protesting Mm -hmm. and fighting and shit. Some, some motherfuckers can't fight. Yeah. (laughs) So, you know, go out there and get your get your ass whooped just because it's the end thing to do. Take an ass whooping just because you want a, a picture for the Insta, for, for the gram, nigga. Don't do that. Like <laughs> contribute in your way. Like we all have talents, we all have skills, we have things we're good at. Mm. Make use of those things because the th- the bad thing about the problem is also the good thing. The bad thing is. There's a lot of work to be done. The good thing is there's a lot of ways you can help. You know what I mean? Mm. If there's so much that needs to be done, there's so many ways you can help. That's the way you can look at it. Mm. And it's more than just putting the Black Lives Matter frame on your Facebook picture. Yeah. I mean, that's cool or whatever, but what else you doing? Mm. And, you know, it's funny with social media, the only reason I like social media is because I can help promote the podcast and comedy stuff and share pictures of my grandsons. So, but I watch social media and I have said some things that have pissed off white people, but more often white people have said things that pissed me off. Like I'm not a racist. And instead of saying something, I just blocked them. And, Mm -hmm. and you know, that's, I probably should have said something and then blocked them. You know what? Here's the thing. I I used to think it was worth it to confront racists, like your racist uncles and shit. Mm-hmm. I used to think it was worth it. And I'm not saying it's not entirely without merit, but at the same time, I think that racist people and people who want to preserve the status quo one of their strategies is to sap the energy of the people who want change. Mm. So they'll tie you up in bullshit arguments and they'll say shit to get on your nerves, to get you to waste time talking to them. Mm. So sometimes the best thing you can do is find people that you can influence that aren't, or you can find people like, for example, would you rather try to convince your racist uncle to not vote for Trump or would you rather go help people get registered to vote who already agree with you? Yeah, I would rather do the second because the first one's never going to happen. Right. And no matter how much time you spend fucking with him, you don't even know he voted in secret. He could tell you he voted for whoever and he still voted for Trump. 
Mm. So it's much more easier. You'll see better fruits or your labor for if you put it into stuff that's productive. Mm. It's more productive. Right. That that makes sense. And that's, uh, you know, that's that's really what I was looking for in advice. And I think you need sometimes you need a push to to understand that and start acting. I know somebody I know this this woman I know this white woman. She this this is funny. It's what she did. She had an uncle. She has an uncle who likes to post racist shit. Mm -hmm. Right. And so she told him. That for every one post that you put out, I'm going to go register two people to vote. <laughs> so just know that. Uh, okay. So I'm going to go find for every one post on Facebook that you put out there that's dumb and racist as shit. I'm going to go find two people to register to vote. Mm. And by the time we're done, you'll have all these racist posts on Facebook and I have 50 voters. Cause you're stupid. Uh-huh. <laughs> now she went out, you know, she was went out and registered people anyway, but he stopped because mm-hmm. <laughs> he's like, Oh, you know, this is counterproductive. Right. Right. So she got him to stop doing that, which is about all you're going to do with him. Cause he's not going to change. Right. Very, very few, very few people when you get my age are open to change. And they they get stuck in where they are, and it's I don't I don't understand it because you know I you know I I was pretty conservative and kind of an asshole up until my late forties, and I decided I needed to change because when you're like that, you're so miserable inside that it's actually killing you, and uh, yeah. you and you you have to you have to change in order to to stay alive and 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 be a human being and i don't understand why other people don't get that type of of realization when they get older cuz you know stuff now well you got people running on windows 95 <laughs> <laughs> you know motherfuckers is out here running windows 95 these new programs they they need more juice baby you yeah. can't be running you know what I'm saying? Yeah. You can't be running this shit on, on, on DOS. You know what I mean? You got people out here that got old hardware, old software. Yeah. They got old operating systems. Mm-hmm. Not everybody can handle the new updates. Yeah. Okay? So, yeah, they short circuit. That's how you ever see, like, like Trump voters, you ever see how their faces be all fucked up? Like, they, yeah. That's because they, they shit. They got a glitch in their shit. <laughs> like they, you know, they they shit is fucked up because you try you, you drop some new shit on them and they 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 operating system couldn't handle that shit. So yeah. their face got stuck. Like their face got stuck. And that's their, why their faces look like that. Their registry is corrupted. Yeah, it's yeah. corrupted. The whole thing. They need a new motherboard, fatherboard, whatever the fuck you want to call it. They the shit is jammed up. Yeah. Okay. It's, and it's hard not. Change is hard. It's hard for a lot of people. Mm. And it's confusing and it's very unsettling. Mm. You know what I'm saying? So it's a lot of people that don't know how to embrace change and know how to handle it. So they get defensive and they pull back and they mm. get, you know, they get, you know, angry. I get it. I understand that. Part of the problem with this country is we we watch too many movies like Gran Torino. 
Mm. Like Clint Eastwood was a shithead in that movie until the end. Yeah. Both white guys are Clint Eastwood and Grant Serino, except there is no end there, good yeah. part. They just die. <laughs> like that's how it happens. Mm. Like we have this we have this obsession with pulling everybody into the future with us. Mm-hmm. It doesn't happen. That's not how human existence has been. When the cavemen were going around <clears throat> and they were walking, if a motherfucker got a broke leg, they left him. Yep. They left him right yep. there and they yep. just kept walking forward and that motherfucker died. Yep. That's, we didn't pick him up and ask him his feelings. Motherfucker, <laughs> like he broke his leg. He can't yep. walk. Yep. He's dead. If we stay with him, then the woolly mammoth is going to eat us. Yep. So we have to keep walking. So that's what we need to keep doing with society is keep walking into the future. And if people don't want to go, fuck them. Yeah. Fuck them. Yeah. And you're not, I, the, the biggest problem I have is you've got footage right here of a man being shot in the back and, <laughs> and people still say, you know, it was his fault. And, yeah. and, some people won't believe you because some people can't believe you because they know it's the truth. Yeah. So it's like, yeah, I mean, but part of it is what do you expect them to say? Cause if you're 60, right. And you have believed that stuff your whole life. And then you admit that you're wrong. You're going to have a lot of other questions about how you've lived your whole life. Mm Mm-hmm. It's too yeah. far for some people. It's a lot of self-examination yeah. that takes place with that type of thing. Got to question a lot of things that you thought before. A lot of decisions that you made are not going to look too good. So, yeah, a lot of people, they just not, they're not in the mood for that. And they old, they like, fuck it. They want to run the clock out. <laughs> you know, you 70, yeah. you know, and going to Perkins is your thing. You know what I'm saying? Like, you ain't got time to be dealing with black people, you like fuck that. I just want to go to Perkins three more times and uh-huh. then I'm gonna die. Yeah. I don't care. <laughs> oh, that's great, man. We've been talking a long time. Uh, yeah, no, I just looked at the clock. Like, goddamn. The, the, this has been really good, though. There's one question I ask everybody that I talk <laughs> to, and this is this is getting totally back to the original subject. What what three things do you know now that you wish you would have known when you started stand up? Everybody works at their own pace. That's one thing. There is no, I guess this is one thing. There is no right way to get to where you want to go. That mm-hmm. You can do it all different types of ways. That's one thing. Another thing is go where you are appreciated when it comes to like comedy. Mm-hmm. Go where people are appreciative of what you do and mm-hmm. like what you do. There are too many, I mean, America has 370 million people, something like that. There are enough people in this country that will like what you do enough where you don't have to worry about eating Mm. again. Find those people because those are going to be the people Mm. that make sure you have a career. Right. 
So go find those people. Don't worry about if everybody likes you, nobody will love you. Mm-hmm. Because for you to be honest and say to really say some real shit, like you, it's going to be people that don't like what you're doing. And that's fine. That's fine. Not everybody's going to like you. You can't have everybody like you. Mm-hmm. So those two things, let me think. One more thing I wish I knew. It's okay to say no to shows. It's okay to say no to shows. It's okay to say no to paid shows. It's okay to 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 say that you don't want to do a thing. Mm. Your your time is valuable. It's the most time is the most valuable thing we have. Yep. Like me and Bill Gates get the same hours in a day. Yeah. Yeah, I mean he got way more money than I do, <laughs> but we all get 24 hours. Right. So your time is very valuable. Learn how to be more protective of your time and say no when you don't think that the thing is going to help you grow as a comic. Mm. You know, it's about growth. Like, <clears throat> don't get me wrong. Some gigs are just for the money. Yeah. You know, some, some things you do are just for the money. But if you can grow with everything that you're doing, it'll help flatten the learning curve. Because mm. if you're getting something from everything you do, then you're growing on the fly and it'll help you develop a lot faster. Right. Right. That makes sense. Well, this has been a great talk. Yeah. Yeah. This has been fun, man. It's I been learned fun. some stuff. Me too. Shit. <laughs> you learn you new shit all the time. Yeah. Yeah. I appreciate you being on and I appreciate everybody watching and I hope yeah. you all check out the behind the bits podcast because I talk to everybody like this kind of, we, <laughs> we <laughs> right. at, least, at least in the comedy stuff. Nobody, uh, so, not everybody comes on and says the problem with white people is this. Yeah. <laughs> the, uh, <laughs> The some of my favorite episodes are 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 with people who who aren't afraid to say what they feel. Um, Stuart Huff was one of my one of my one of the ones. greatest man. Yeah, I, so, I love him. Yeah, love him so, to death. So you know those <laughs> those are the ones that I really like to talk to, and and I'm glad I got to talk to you tonight. Yeah, well, I'm glad. I'm glad. Uh, thank you very much for having me on. This has been a lot of fun. Yeah.